Let us uh, move to uh, the theme of eschatology. And as Aletheia uh, or whoever, I, Luke, as Luke hands out, uh, hands out, hands out, hands out, handouts. That's a tongue twister. Um, uh, I'll mention that uh, for those of you who weren't here when we first started, we're alternating uh, every other week is my plan to alternate between lecturing and discussion. This week is a discussion uh, theme. And uh, I do want to ask a few questions of review. Uh, Obviously, if we're studying eschatology, then we should uh, at least... Uh, have a somewhat of an idea of what eschatology is. So what does the word eschatology mean? What does the word eschatology mean? Very good. Study of the end times. The ology uh, gets you the study idea and the eschaton, eschatos in the Greek uh, gets you the end times idea. Uh, eschatos is literally um, the furthest extremity of an area, so it can be used of uh, spatial and spatial terms. Um, it also can be used in terms of the extremity uh, of something in terms of value or uh, greatness. So the extremity of suffering that someone might uh, go through might be uh, described in terms of eschatos. Um, It's also used of the end of something in a list, the end of something in a sequence. And so that's the uh, idea in which we're uh, thinking of it here, uh, the end, the last uh, eschatos. So the last things, the end things, um, is the is the root in the Greek for the word eschatology? So study of study of end end times, study of last things. Oh, uh, you can get a passing grade for the day if you can answer the third question. What was the main point of last week's Sunday school or uh, last week's lecture? You might say. Um, what was the main point? Isaiah gets a pass already, (laughs) given that he wasn't here. Very good, very good. So the proper place to begin to understand the New Testament is the Old Testament. That's the proper place to begin to understand the New Testament. And we were thinking especially in terms of uh, end times, and so we mentioned uh, day of the Lord. We didn't try to understand what it was, the day of the Lord, but we mentioned how it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in the New Testament. If you're going to understand what the New Testament is, obviously the place to start is in the Old Testament. Uh, we looked at the word end, um, the the word that would, would be uh, synonymous with the Greek uh, word eschatos in the Old Testament, or at least uh, is used uh, synonymously at, at times in, in the from the Hebrew, but uh, we looked at the word end, and we also looked at the word the language of uh, last last days, last years, last time, uh, end time, um, and all of those you can find both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the best way to understand what is in the New Testament is to go back 
uh, to the Old Testament, especially uh, as we were considering um, eschatology and end times. Um, which brings me then to starting a new conversation. And that is the first question there. Um, I shouldn't have left the word initial for initial questions, but uh, initial questions for this week, uh, well, I should just cross out initial and do questions. But um, how might last week's thesis, thesis is the blank, how might uh, the point of, of last week's Sunday School um, be helpfully expanded? So if uh, the best way to understand New Testament eschatological teaching is by going to Old Testament eschatological teaching. What other ways might that uh, thesis be expanded helpfully? Um, obviously, it could be narrowed down, right? We, we didn't go into um, we didn't go into uh, who is the Messiah. And if you're going to ask the question who is the Messiah in the New Testament, you could go to the references to the Messiah in the Old Testament to understand what's happening in the New Testament. Um, so you could narrow it down and focus in um, particular questions. But how might last week's thesis be helpfully expanded? I'll let you ponder a little while I turn. So if you're going to broaden that idea, how might that idea be helpfully broadened? Obviously, there, there might be a number of ways that it could be helpfully broadened. Excellent. So at the most, at the most broad uh, level, the, the best way to understand any scripture is in light of other scripture. And I think of the language of, uh, of Acts where the Bereans were said to be uh, uh, doing a good job because they were comparing scripture with scripture. Okay? If you're going to take uh, an understanding of, of eschatology in the New Testament, use eschatology in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're going to take an understanding of a particular text, uh, look at that text in light of uh, other text. Um, comparing scripture with scripture would be a great, um, probably broadest way of, of thinking of that. Um, you could probably go outside of scripture and, and, and expand the thesis, right? Um, if you're going to understand Huckleberry Finn, uh, don't try to understand Huckleberry Finn in terms of the voyage of the dawn treader. Um, understand Huckleberry Finn in terms of Huckleberry Finn, or expand it beyond that and ex uh, understand it in terms of other writings by the same author. But um, uh, we're, we're thinking scripturally and, and uh, Bible-related. Um, what other ways might this idea of looking to New Testament eschatology first by understanding Old Testament eschatology? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two homeschool mom observations. First, look to define the terms. Mm -hmm. So we read a lot last week about the day of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Okay. Start looking in um, references, Bible dictionary things. What 
Mm-hmm. What is the day of the Lord referring to? So that I have a sense of what the day of the Lord is. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think always helps in the study of history is build a timeline. So you go through Old Testament prophecy and you find things that talk about the coming Christ or the destruction of Jerusalem. We know when those things happen from our vantage point in history. Mm-hmm. So I can begin to lock those things in on a timeline. Mm-hmm. And then I have something I can see that helps me um, make it more concrete. Yes. It's not just way back there in the deep, dark time. Right, right. Yeah. You're, I'm smiling because you're teaching the rest of my lesson for you. Might as well just come up. <laughs> it's very good, very good. Um, but uh, if if you're going to understand definitions, so speaking beyond just comparing scripture with scripture, if you're going to understand particular words, definitions, comparing them, um, uh, get get definitions so that. Um, so that you can have an idea of what you're talking about. And those definitions should come by looking at other places where the, the language is used. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking in terms of different portions of the scriptures. So obviously the New Testament is best interpreted in light of the Old Testament. Um, this morning, as we go to Psalm 105, we're going to be uh, seeing how that uh, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and the patriarchs, um, those promises are um, are being explained and uh, some of their fulfillments uh, being spoken about in Psalm 105. Uh, so even uh, when you go from Old Testament to Old Testament, you, you want to con- compare scripture with scripture. To say that with a little more specificity, if there are Old Testament prophecies and then you have a further expansion of those same ideas in the Old Testament, so before you even get to the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament prophecies are best understood in, uh, fulfillments are best understood in light of the Old Testament prophecies. Um, so uh, whether you're talking, comparing Old Testament to New Testament, or comparing scripture to scripture generally, or just comparing one Old Testament passage with another Old Testament passage, uh, we want to read the Bible according to the teaching of the Bible. Uh, that, that's the, the major takeaway. Uh, which, to narrow in then, and to zero in on eschatology, let's think a little bit about prophecy. So question number two, how should you read prophetic sections of scripture? How should you read prophetic sections of scripture? Now, maybe it's helpful if I give a little bit of of background here, because across Christianity, especially in evangelicalism, the majority of evangelicals go to the Bible, and when they read the Bible, they read the Bible in a literal fashion. Uh, that is to say, they read it understanding it according to the normal meaning of how language works. With one exception. One major exception if you're looking uh, especially at evangelicals. If you're looking at evangelicals, 
The one exception to a literal understanding of the word of God is sometimes when you come to the uh, question of prophecy. And then you might have a spiritual understanding of uh, whatever text is in view. So for example, uh, the uh, promises that the Messiah is going to rule, uh, some, some take those promises and they say that in the uh, era after Christ's coming, uh, Christ um, is ruling, the Messiah is ruling on earth through uh, the, the, in the hearts of the people who are uh, believers and Christians. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense at the, uh, at the outset, I think. Um, and I'm echoing language of my teacher, Dr. Bowler. But uh, as you think about that, um, if Christ is ruling now, in the hearts and lives of believers, through the hearts and lives of believers in the world, if that's how he's ruling now, in the spiritual way he's ruling, um, how does that fit with the problems, like even right now, this past week, you could go to the news and you could look at uh, different happenings in, uh, in Israel and contentions that they have with Palestine um, you could look at uh, uh, ways in which the Palestinians are trying to um, work against the, the, the blessing, for, not for the blessing of the, the Israelites. Um, if, if the Messiah is ruling, it would certainly seem like uh, it would be a very different circumstance than what we have, would be a, a shorthand way of saying it. Um, So that doesn't make a lot of sense. But how should you read prophetic sections of Scripture? How should you read prophetic sections of Scripture? Maybe I've said too much and given the answer and so no. For the future, yes. Yes, and how are you going to understand the language that tells about the future? Should we should we understand it in um, I thought of introducing a concept that won't help. Uh, should we understand it? I think the word spiritual is is a I, helpful way I, um, I, or broad. It's hard to answer briefly, but I think the idea is we interpret that language according to the same rules that we would use to interpret any other language in scripture. In in other words, we don't split off and apply a different set of rules. Yes, yes. So um, this is a question that I bring to your attention because it helps us in thinking about uh, what is called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just a big word for how do you go about interpreting scripture? How do you go about understanding scripture? Um, what are the rules for interpreting scripture? Um, and uh, sometimes when we come to the, uh, the idea of hermeneutics and, uh, and understanding what the scripture is intending, um, sometimes we do unhelpful, or we could do unhelpful things, I think in, in broader evangelicalism, especially in the realm of eschatology, um, this is happening and has happened. Um, we at Blaine Baptist Church hold to a premillennial 
pre-tribulational understanding of eschatology. And uh, if, if you find someone who is premillennial, and if you find someone who is pre-tribulational, who believes that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation uh, begins, um, you, can, you can pretty well go to the bank with the idea that you have found, in finding that person, you have found a dispensationalist. You found a dispensationalist. Now, the, the, the fact that you are premillennial and pre-tribulational is the outcome of a particular way of understanding the scripture. And a good, uh, broad way to understand that way of understanding the scripture is literal. A literal understanding. A normal is a, a great word. A normal understanding of language. Um, sometimes, and I'll, I'll go down a, a tiny rabbit trail, okay? Uh, sometimes when you hear the word literal or normal understanding, well, then someone will say, but what do you do with the metaphors in the Bible? Um, uh, God obviously isn't actually a rock. God actually isn't a fortress. When Jesus says, I am the door, uh, you can't interpret that literally. You can't interpret that normally. And I would push back and say, yes, you can. A literal normal understanding of Jesus saying, I am the door, doesn't lead you to go looking for Jesus' hinges. Right? Okay? Uh, You realize that literal and normal understanding of language includes metaphor. Metaphorical ways of speaking are, are, are a part of normal language. Um, So I think it's helpful to understand literal, not in contrast to metaphorical, but literal um, in this sense, in contrast to spiritual, Um, which obviously uh, we could spend a whole bunch of time with definition there, but that's not the point of what I want to do right right at the moment. Um, But how should you read the prophetic sections of scripture? Answer, the way you read all the rest of the Bible, right? You don't come with a special set of rules or a new set of rules or a different set of rules when you come to a a prophecy, okay? So um, I'm not going to take time in the morning. I think we have time right now. Um, We might not get through all of question three, but I'm, I'm totally fine picking it up next time we have conversation. Um, Genesis 12, Genesis 12. So I'm not planning to read this um, in the morning service. I'm I'm just going to make mention of it in the morning service. But Genesis 12 is God speaking to Abram, and we rightly understand it, excuse me, as some of the covenant promises that God has uh, made with Abraham, okay? And so in the beginning of Genesis 12, you read, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now stop. Even before you get to verse two, if God says to Abraham, God says to Abram at this point in the, 
in the story. Go forth from your country, your relatives, your father's house. Uh, To what is he referring when he says, leave your country, leave your father's house? Leave your relatives. It's literal, right? Uh, In fact, it's probably more literal than you might expect. Um, In in the ancient Near Eastern societies, it was not, and and this was true of the the Jews, um, it was not uncommon for someone growing up in their father's house to get married, to take their uh, wife, and having built a, a... a structure either on the property of the father or uh, actually attached to the the side of the house uh, to move in with their wife. Uh, They've established a new family unit, but they're still a part of the broader family unit. And so to leave your father's house might actually be something like to leave your father's... uh, yeah, house is probably the best word. Uh, home, the, the, the literal structure uh, where your father lives. Okay? Um, so then, uh, go forth to the land which I will show you. Now, if house and relatives and father's house um, are a country, are literal, what would we expect of the word Land. We're not expecting some amorphous, unspecified kind of blessing of God on on uh, on Abram. We're expecting that Abram will go forth, and what will he come to? He'll come to some bit of soil that his feet can walk on, that he's able to call his. Okay, you, you tracking there? So the literal, uh, the normal understanding of the language in verse 1 ought to be how we understand the verse. Until, until there's language in Scripture that leads us to other understandings, we, we, that's what, how we understand. Um, verse 2, uh, if verse 1 is literal, then shouldn't we be expecting verse 2 to be much the same? And... I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, if all the families of the earth will be blessed is understood literally in normal understanding of human language, how many families of the earth is that? It said all, right? Uh, uh, all peoples will be blessed because of the promise that God has given to a- Abram. Um, your name being great. Uh, do, do we think in terms of the world today and think that the Japanese and the Chinese and the Peru? Peruvian, Peruvian people, and uh, the German people, and the American people. Do we think that they think very highly when they think Israel, or when they think 
descendant of, of Abraham? Okay. So uh, if, if we're expecting a literal fulfillment of this uh, promise, this, this covenant language, uh, as it's going to be, come to be known in the rest of the book of Genesis, um, we ought to be looking for uh, a blessing to all the nations, all peoples, through, through Abraham. Um, we ought to be looking for Abraham, the name of Abraham and his, and his lineage to be well spoken of uh, across on the lips and in the minds of many. Um, th- this is what we mean by uh, normal understanding of, of reading scripture or literal understanding of, of scripture. And so that leads then to um, the third question. And the third question, I'm going to direct us uh, to a particular text. How does Daniel 9, that's the blank there in number three, how does Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, help us understand prophecy better? And this is where... Um, Mrs. Marshall can do the rest because uh, you have the beginning of a fulfillment of prophecy uh, from our historical vantage point, and you have some of that same prophecy unfulfilled. Okay, so this this prophecy is one of not many in Scripture, but a few in Scripture that's really helpful because, however, you understand the fulfillment of the beginning of the prophecy. Should you understand the fulfillment of the rest of the prophecy in a different way? No. If you understand the beginning of the fulfillment in a particular way, should you understand the conclusion of the fulfillment in that same kind of way? Yes. Now, I'm asking yes-no questions, and that's uh, not so good for uh, teaching endeavors, but I'm trying to make it really simple. Right? Even the kids could understand this. Okay? Um, whatever the promise is in the beginning, uh, and it's fulfilled in that kind of way, then that's the same thing that uh, you would expect the promise to be fulfilled in the future. If mom and dad says, uh, go and do a great job cleaning your room, and we'll give you some ice cream tonight, and if you keep your room clean for a whole month, we'll give you ice cream at the end of uh, of the month, you don't expect to get an ice cream cone tonight and then to get a chocolate bar or a spanking or something else at the end of the month, right? If you get ice cream for doing what you're supposed to do at, at, at that day, then you expect you'll get ice cream at the end, right? Understand them both, even though it's different times. Uh, Daniel, I'm not there yet, but uh, turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. And in verse 24, Daniel has been considering the desolations of Jerusalem. Um, he's been considering the, uh, this is Daniel 9 and verse 2. 
He's been considering the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Um, and as he considers the uh, the devastations that have come upon Jerusalem, right? Now, um, question for us in, in terms of context. Uh, in Daniel's day, uh, what is the status of Jerusalem? What will you find if you go to Jerusalem in Daniel's day? No. What, what had happened? Ruins. It had been it had been plundered. It had been burned. It, it was ruins. You remember Daniel is taken away with uh, Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, um, and after that, uh, uh, Jerusalem is uh, just ravaged in 586, uh, destroyed the temple um, and and the the, the city. Uh, all destroyed in 586. And so now Daniel's reflecting on all the uh, judgment that's come upon Jerusalem is good language for it. Um, uh, He's speaking of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel who've been driven um, because of, this is the end of verse seven, because of their unfaithful deeds, which they committed against you. And so he's reflecting on the judgment that's come on Jerusalem and on the Jews. And he's reflecting on that in light of uh, what God has told uh, that judgment would be in uh, Jeremiah. And as you get to uh, verse 24, with that backdrop in mind, then you begin to get something of an answer from the Lord or some insight from the Lord into what is going to happen in the future. Um, uh, the angel Gabriel, the man Gabriel, he's called man because uh, earlier when he had appeared in chapter 8, uh, he appeared in the form of a man. The angel Gabriel uh, comes to Daniel and is going to help uh, Daniel in understanding uh, verse 24. Let's pick it up there with the particular language of Daniel 9. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up a vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Now, uh, right away, off the bat, um, before we can answer the question, how does Daniel 9, 24 to 27 help us understand prophecy better? Uh, we need to understand Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So let's, uh, let's pursue trying to understand that uh, a little bit. Um, 70 weeks, verse 24, have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Uh, who is your people and your holy city? Jerusalem is the holy city. Who is the your? Daniel. So then it's Daniel's people and uh, their city, uh, his city, um, the city which he sees as holy. So we're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about the Jews. And there's going to be a continuation of judgment. There's going to be a continuation of to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. Um, Verse, uh, but uh, then the question is at the very beginning of the verse, why 70 weeks? Why 70 weeks? Um, so 
uh, 70 weeks, uh, we, we see that language and we think of 70 groups of seven days. So seven times seven is 49, add the zero, 490 days, right? Is my math somewhere in the vicinity of being actually accurate and correct? Uh, 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 if you get low enough in the multiplication tables, I can do them. Um, but uh, 490, 490 days would be what we think of right away when we think of uh, weeks. But actually this language weeks is a language for groups of seven. Groups of seven. It's not necessarily uh, groups of seven days. It could be seven minutes, seven hours, seven days, seven uh, groups of seven weeks, uh, seven years, seven millennium. Um, and so the question is, uh, what is it that is this group of seven? Seventy sevens would, would be a good literal understanding of that language there. Um, and in fact, if you have a New American Standard, I don't know if the ESV does this. I didn't look in the ESV, but uh, verse 24, 70 weeks in the New American Standard. There's a one before weeks and there's an A before weeks. And the A is uh, uh, parallel passages or other cross-references in Scripture. But the one is a help for you to know that there's other ways of interpreting or, or translating or understanding this particular word weeks. And so if you go in the, uh, in the uh, column, you'll find uh, 24.1 or units of seven. And so throughout the chapter, Units of seven. So the uh, New American Standard uh, helps you to realize that there's something going on with the Hebrew language there. So that even if you don't know the Hebrew language, you understand that there's units of seven being spoken about. So 70 units of seven. Now, what, uh, what units of seven ought we to be expecting? Well, let's, let's uh, continue reading. And see if we might get uh, if we might get any help there. Okay, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, um, the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, where does that happen? Cyrus. Good. And uh, passage of scripture. Nehemiah chapter 2. Very good. Uh, so you can go to, we're not going to go there right now, but if you want to go look at the decree and the timing of the decree isn't something that uh, probably we normally would memorize, but it's March 5th, 444 BC. Uh, March 5th, 444 BC. That's the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, so now there's going to be a time frame from the um, issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Now, um, at this point, I'll say what uh, I heard Dr. Bowler say. Um, I'm bringing into the text here uh, a big assumption. I think it's a valid assumption. I think it's an assumption that you will probably agree with. But based on my reading of the New Testament... I come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Okay? So, uh, I, I'm looking at this uh, text, 
And when it says the word Messiah, now that word could be more generic. It could be something other than Jesus Christ because the word Messiah is a word for deliverer, um, one who is anointed, uh, to be more specific. But uh, uh, in this context um, uh, and in other Old Testament contexts, the word Messiah is sometimes used uh, not of Jesus Christ, but of others who are uh, anointed. Okay? Um, but in this context, Messiah the Prince, so there's a particular, um, a particular uh, anointed one who is going to come, and there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Um, that comes seven and 62. Uh, one of the children, uh, what's 62 plus seven? 62 plus seven. So you got to know your math, even if you're reading a Bible. What's 62 plus 7? Meredith's mind is going. Can Ivan? Ivan knows? Um, did I say it right? 62 plus 69. You got it right. 69. So there's 69 weeks. 7 weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat or with streets and moat. Um, and again, uh, the New American Standard has a l- little footnote or a little um, translation comment there with number three on the plaza. Um, even in times of distress. Um, now, uh, if, we're, if we're talking about a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and then we're talking about it being built again, um, uh, and uh, 69 uh, weeks, uh, that would be no longer 490 days, but 490 minus 7, so 483 days. Tracking the math there? Okay, nice. You have it written down. Um, uh 483 days um, uh, that's uh, so that's a little uh, uh, I, I didn't think about this in terms of uh, generalizing but why don't we generalize to a year and a half 483 days um, it's not that but it's we'll just say somewhere in the vicinity of a year and a half if it's a week of, of uh, weeks of, of days weeks of days uh, that are being spoken of um uh, as you look at this text, um, a question uh, for us, not, not just in terms of uh, how long it is from the issuing of the decree until the Messiah, the prince, um, but also in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, this word weeks, um, it's it's interesting that if you go back, uh, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, when when Daniel is uh, thinking about the prophecy of Jeremiah, um, he he's thinking in terms of years because it was seventy years in verse two, uh, Daniel nine and verse two. But then also it's interesting that if you go um, to 
uh, Daniel 10 and verse 2, the um, the language for weeks in Daniel 10 and verse 2 is different than the language of weeks in uh, chapter 9. The the language of chapter 10 and verse 2 is uh, uh, um, more literally weeks of days, and the word days is in there. Okay, Um, So if you're going to be really literal in your interpretation, um, uh, Daniel was mourning for three weeks of days. Three entire weeks of days. So we expect that Daniel is mourning for the, the, the uh, seven times three, the, the, that span of those, those days, the, those three weeks, uh, weeks of days. Um, the, the language back in, verse, in chapter 9, verses 24 and following, the, the language doesn't have the language of days in there. And in fact, if you, uh, if you, trans, if you figure out uh, 483 days, um, after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, does Jesus the Messiah come 483 days later? Most obviously not. Um, if you were using a different segment of time, um, what length of time might we be talking about? Seven groups of seven days, weeks? Seven groups of months, uh, uh, 70 uh, months of sevens, um, 70 years, groups of seven years. Um, if Jesus is the one who we uh, think of as the Messiah, then um, our best understanding of 483 weeks would be that 483 weeks or 483 groups of seven, units of seven, is speaking about years, years. Um, and so as you come to that, uh, oh my, I'm, <laughs> I'm having fun and I'm not seeing the time. Uh, we need to conclude. So as you come to, uh, as you come to uh, March 5th, 444 BC, and you add 483 years, with the big footnote, and I'm not going to explain now because of time, but uh, with the big footnote that the Jews had a different calendar year than we have years. So you have to, you have to, uh, you have to understand the difference in years for Jewish calendar year versus our calendar year. Okay, we, we have a year and then we have another year and another year and the fourth year we'll have a leap year and we'll add a day. Okay, and then every so many years, uh, the astronomers will add some minutes and seconds uh, to to make sure it's all uh, working out. Um, whereas for the Jews, uh, they had a lunar um, they they worked on a lunar calendar, and so th- they were working with uh, shorter months. The the month the the time frame frame from a full moon to a full moon, and so they would have a number of years, and then after a number of years, they would add a month because of the calendar creep, to to use Dr. Bowder's language, because of the calendar creep. So uh, factoring in the difference between a Jewish calendar and how they were thinking of a year and uh, our understanding of a year, can you guess when? 483 uh, years comes out to be during the life of 
Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, we, we, we've only done half of what I want to do, but we, we've done enough to be at a good stopping point. If you're understanding prophecy, the way that you understand the beginning of the prophecy, something that's already been fulfilled, should be the same way that you understand the, the end of the prophecy, the way that it's going to be fulfilled in time yet future from us. Okay? Um, Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is a really helpful prophecy because some of it has already been fulfilled and some of it still awaits fulfillment. And the fulfillment that we are awaiting will happen in the same manner, in, in like kind, to the fulfillment that has already happened. Um, that is why Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is, uh, is especially helpful to us in understanding eschatology. Let us conclude in prayer and look to our Lord. Lord, Thank you that you have ordered your world and your communication to us so that we can understand what you have said and the world around us. Uh, Thank you for giving us math. Uh, Thank you for giving us uh, your word in clear fashion. Uh, Even when it gets complicated, we can understand it as we take time to think through it. Might you help us to think well? I pray that you would bless in Christ's name. Amen.